tense? Are you moody? Are you irregular? If so, you might be a verb. Yeah, a verb is a word that describes action. It's a it's an action word. There's basically three types of verbs. There are action verbs, there are linking verbs, and there are helping verbs. So three general categories. And I am not a citizen of grammaria, so please do not unnecessarily police all of these proposed propositional predications that I'm about to give. But along the lines of, let's look at action verbs. An action verb is really directed with the subject. So it might be something like this. Jimmy Swarthow ate a slice of the meathead pizza. Okay, action. There's a direct connection with the subject. A linking verb is going to link the subject with a, with a noun or an adjective or something along those lines. And so it might be something a little more like this. Jimmy appeared happy with his slice of meathead pizza. Okay, linked up with happiness there, appeared happy. A helping verb is something that gives a, a little bit of possibility. So it might sound like this. Jimmy is going to eat another slice of meathead pizza. So, so all of these are pictures of how verbs work. What we know at the very least is that Jimmy was able to avoid the noid. He got his pizza. Okay, that's how it works. There's a student standing at the board writing helping verbs on the board. He wrote, am, are, is, have, has, had, do, does, did. And after he wrote those words out, he, he turned to his teacher and he said, you know what, if they keep helping... Those other verbs are never going to learn how to do this themselves. There's some truth to that, you know. A a verb is not designed just to be a word on a page. Verbs are designed for us to be doing them ourselves. And there's one verb in particular that we need to be doing. One verb that is an action verb for sure. In fact, it's the kind of verb that if you avoid, you will be completely shut off today from all that is good and holy and happy and healthy. And not just today, but you will be shut off forever from those things. We're not just talking about being a a meathead here. We're talking about being separated from that which is good and holy and happy and healthy. So, what verb has that kind of power? What verb has that kind of punch? What verb has that kind of importance and that kind of influence over every second of your life? Well, let's see if we can find out. Apostle Paul is going to help us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Paul writes, love. That, that's the verb. That that's, that's the verb that's most important. That's the verb that defines the status of your soul right now. Love. Now, we're not talking about Valentine's Day candy love. We're not talking about rom-com movie love. We're not even talking about uh, meathead pizza love. We're talking about a love that's, that's deeper. We're not talking about intimate love or family love or friend love. We're talking about what's known as agape love love. It's love that's self-denying. Love that keeps loving 
when it is rejected. It's love that chooses to value other people. Not because they cheer for the same team you cheer for. Not because they agree with your opinions on politics and pandemics and plans for school going back. But a Christian chooses to love and chooses to value other people because they themselves have been chosen and loved. John, the disciple of Jesus, put it very simply like this in 1 John four nineteen: We love because he first loved us. Agape love is a reflection of the pure and perfect love of God. Now, now we are not ever going to be pure and perfect in our love. Okay, that's not going to happen. But we know what pure and perfect love is because we know God, and God has loved us first. And if we're in Christ, if we've been saved and redeemed and rescued by the love of God, then we will choose to love. It's, it's how all of the math comes together. So love is a verb. Not just a verb, it's the verb. It's, it's the most important verb in your life. The most important verb in the universe. So, what does that verb look like in action? Well, Paul tells us, continuing in verse 4, love is patient. <sighs> Couldn't he have done something else first? I mean, really. Patience? Paul does not know how to win friends and influence people because nobody Nowhere wants to hear anything about patience right now. Patience. But love, real love, is patient. That means it's long-suffering. It has a long fuse. Patient love means you're willing to put up with a lot. Patient love means you're not quick to get angry and retaliate. Patient love means you're not quick to let a lot of different people about a lot of different things get on your nerves. Well, I mean, that sounds easy enough, right? No, actually, I would say in July 2020, that sounds almost impossible. To, to have patient love sounds a little bit impossible. So how do we love with that kind of patience? Well, we can't if we're not saved. If things aren't right between you and God, then you're not going to be able to love with this agape kind of love. Now, does that mean that impatient people are not Christians? Everything goes back to, to habits, okay? Are you, generally speaking, known by most people in your life to be consistently impatient and angry with everything that's happening? And have you been that way for most of your life? If so, then for the good of your own soul, you might want to reevaluate that sinner's prayer when you were a kid. But all of us struggle with patience. We do. We, we struggle with the concept of being patient. But do we struggle with repentance? Do we struggle with a desire to change? When we're impatient, are we quick to ask our spouse or our kids or our parents or the people we work with or the people that we go to church with, are we quick to ask them to forgive us? 
Or do we just say, hey man, that's just how I am. It's just, that's just the way it is. Or do we think things like, well, if, if they would have done things the way I wanted them to do them to begin with, I wouldn't have to be so impatient. Sorry, you won't find either one of those permission slips in the Bible. They're just not there. What do you need the most when it comes to dealing with all the different people in your life? You know, the, the people who believe in God and the people who don't believe in God. The people who live in your home, the people in your friend group, the people in your, your work group, the people in your church, the people that you know in the world of politics, the people you don't know that you run into in Target. How do you deal with all the people in life? What do you need the most as you deal with them? What you need the most is the gospel. What you need the most for all the different relationships in your life is the gospel. I have a counseling friend, Rick Thomas. He says this, if the gospel has not broken you down, you will not be able to export the gospel to a gospel rejecter. A part of this brokenness means that you see yourself as equal to the person you are trying to help and only the grace of God in your life makes you different than them. He goes on. Without recognizing your helplessness apart from God's grace, your selfless love will turn selfish and retaliatory. That's not good. So, so how do we find this helplessness? How do we recognize this helplessness in our lives through the grace of God? How do we fuel our hearts and our minds so that we will move toward selfless, self-denying love? Peter has a word to help us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is not tardy. God is not lazy. He's not accidentally delaying. He is on purpose leaving the door to his kingdom open he is on purpose pointing to empty chairs at his banquet table this is who he is this is how he works god is patiently waiting to receive right now he's patiently waiting to receive but he will not patiently wait forever. Jesus is coming again. So repent today and follow him. God does not desire that the wicked would perish. No, his, his character, his nature is filled with grace and mercy and compassion and patience. This patient love we see in God. His desire is that all rebellious, unrighteous people would be saved. That's his desire. All of them. But he does not and will not act on that desire. Why? Well, I don't know. 
His ways are, are not my ways. Somebody might say, well, I don't think that's fair. Let me ask you a question. If, if someone were to commit a, an act of, of violence, a violent crime against someone in your family, and that person was, was captured and they were standing before the judge, and the judge said, hey, you know what? People make mistakes. No big deal. You're free to go. That's not what we'd expect. We, we would expect justice to be served. But for some reason, when it comes to the creator of the universe, we think that God should just take justice and throw it to the wind when it comes to our sin. See, the reality, if we really look at the salary and benefits package for rebellion against God, that package is nothing more than eternal everlasting death and separation and terror away from God. Away from God. That's where we should start. But if we're honest, we usually start with, well, that's not fair. Some people would even say, well, my God would never send someone to hell. The problem is, is that we can't make God into our own image. He has to be who he is. And according to what the Scripture says about God, He's the creator of the universe. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Lord of Hosts. He's the Great I Am. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is holy, holy, holy. He is God, and there is no other. There is no other. And Peter says that God is not being slow. He is patiently waiting to receive people. God is not unable He is not uncaring. He is not unloving. God, His love is so pure and so perfect, He desires that everyone would be saved. God is the one making a way for things to change. God is the one making the way for salvation. God is the one being merciful and compassionate and loving and patient. This is who He is. This is what He does. But many people are ready to reject God and keep rejecting God. Remember the story about Noah? I mean, God could have strengthened Noah to build the ark in 10 years, 20 years, something like that. But it was 120 years. 120 years it took to build the ark. No, no, why? Because during all of that time, Noah was calling people to repent and turn to God. He was calling people away from death and to life. For 120 years. You know, the world back in March seemed to flip a switch of patient love for about 30 days. For about 30 days, it it seemed like that the world was going to move toward God. At the very least, the, the world was going to move toward patient love. But over the last 120 days, whether it's making plans for church or making plans for school or, or anything on social media, patient love seems to have disappeared. Those early weeks seemed to be an imagination. By the way, how many people 
turned to God during those 120 years? How many people heard Noah graciously call them to repentance and life and they turned and joined the church of the ark? How many people? Zero. Nobody. Nil. Nobody. 120 years of hearing the gospel. And nobody came. See, what happens is people who mock God and they mock Jesus' return, they mock in such a way that they can't see or refuse to see that God is actually showing them compassion. God is showing mercy and compassion and patience to the people who are mocking Him. He's leaving the door open. He's pointing to the empty chairs and He's saying, come, please come. You know, there's a lesson in that for Christians as well. Think back over the last 120 days. How many sermons have you watched online? How many Zoom Sunday school classes or Bible studies have you been in? How many devotional books have you read? And yet those truths from God that you read and heard and listened to, you either ignored, you rejected, you forgot or something, but you have not engaged them in your life. They are not part of of who you are. You heard God's truth, you saw God's truth, you read God's truth, but you have rejected God's truth. Listen, you know, the truth of the matter is when it comes to that kind of rejection, you know, we can blame the president and we can blame the governor. We can blame Dr. Fossey. We can blame other politicians. We can blame the pastor. We can blame any person you want to blame. But at the end of the day, when you reject God's truth, you reject God's truth. No one else is responsible for us rejecting God's truth. We've been shown His truth. We've been shown His mercy. We've been shown His grace. We have received His compassion and His patience. What are we doing with it? Because see, if we reject God's truth, what we're really saying is, our way is better. And God's way is not important enough for me to apply to my life right now. That's a danger zone. It's a big danger zone. And when we consider just that one aspect of rebelling against God, rebelling against His truth, rebelling against His way, listen, I promise we should rejoice that we don't get what's fair. No, God really is full of patience and love and compassion. That is who He is. And as believers... He was patient with us before we were saved. He's patient with us now. And because of all this patience that we receive from God, we should follow the pattern of our good shepherd. And we should choose to love and we should choose to value others. Love is a verb and love is patient. Love is patient. We should be long-suffering. We should have a long fuse. But that sounds like neat Bible language. What does it look like in real life? I was reading a story this week about Abraham Lincoln. And it seems that in the early days of the Civil War, there was a man named Edwin Stanton. 
And he was using social media of the day to just constantly criticize Lincoln. He called him a gorilla and a cunning clown. Now, did Lincoln know that he was saying all these things about him? Yep. Yeah, he knew, but he didn't retaliate. He was long-suffering. He was patient. The president knew, but he chose not to retaliate. His fuse was long. And when the time came for him to appoint someone as an overseer within the government of the war, he called on Edwin. And when asked why he did that, he simply said, because he is the best man for the job. From the White House to the State House to the Church House to my house to your house, this world desperately needs that kind of humility. Love is a verb, and love is patient. But that's not the only action love has. Listen to what Paul says next. Love is patient. Love is kind. Someone has said that kindness is patience in action. I like that. It's a good picture. Kindness is patience in action. Step with me into a moment here. This, this is an actual moment in history, but but for the sake of conversation, and because I know some folks are, are struggling with sports, let's just have a little fun with this just for a moment. Imagine that this coming Saturday, you are in your favorite sports stadium. And let's just say that it normally seats 100,000 people. But on this particular day, there's only about 1,000 people there. Most of them are, are school boosters. And everybody's on the field in tailgating chairs, socially distanced and spread out. Now, I'm no mathematician, so I don't know if the square footage and the square footage of the field and the chair, I, I don't know if the math works, but just imagine, there's a thousand people in chairs, everybody's spread out. And you aren't just one in a thousand, you're actually part of the starting team. And your coach has been up in the upper deck all morning. He's been up by himself alone in the corner in the highest place collecting his thoughts. And now he's come down out of the upper deck. He's made his way onto the field. And with all the people there, he's walking over to his players, the starting team. The tech guys, they've got him mic'd up so that everybody in the stadium can hear what he's going to say, but he's directing all of his attention to his players. This is going to be the preseason speech. And this is what he says first. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And he looks around at his players for a moment and he continues. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you for even sinners do the same? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. And then Coach pauses and he 
looks again at his players, almost one by one, he looks them in the eye, and then he continues, and he says this, but love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So after that preseason speech, you going to stay on the team? Or are you going to quit? Because you're thinking, hey man, I, I didn't sign up for this stuff. Nah, this is, this is not what I came here for. See, here's the problem. Those are the commands of Jesus. You're either with him or you're not with him. You're either on the team or you're not on the team. Now look, as, as players... In, in the ministry, in the kingdom of God, we're not always going to do everything right, okay? We're not going to be perfect. And we're definitely not going to be perfect in kindness and perfect in patience and perfect in love. And we're going to drop the ball every now and then. We're going to miss a block every now and then. We're going to get flagged for pass interference. But obeying the coach's instructions is not an option. It's not something we, we get to choose to do. Listen, you don't have to agree with every president. You don't have to agree with every politician. You don't have to agree with every pastor. You don't have to agree with every person in your life. But you have to agree with Jesus. I mean, if, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you, you have to agree with Jesus. And so the coach has given us not just those instructions, but many others. And so are we with him or are we without him? Our actions show where we are. Love is a verb. Love is patient and love is kind. But what does that look like in real life? Not, not, not an imaginary scenario in a stadium. What, what does it look like in, in real life? I was reading a story this week um, from the late Paul Harvey, something that he shared on his radio program one day. It's a story about Carl Coleman. Carl was on his way to work and the young woman in the car next to him got a little too close and their fenders collided and so they pulled over on the side and, and the young woman got out and she looked at Carl's car and she looked at her car and she saw the damage and she just, bless her heart she just started weeping just started crying she, she told Carl, she goes, I'm so sorry it's, it's my fault, I know it's my fault but you don't understand, this is a brand new car we just got it from the brand new car lot. I've only had it for two days. And I have no earthly idea how I'm going to tell my husband that this happened. And she just kept crying. And Carl tried to console her the best he could. Well, they knew they were going to have to exchange information. And so the woman walked around and she opened up the glove compartment to pull out the envelope that had the registration and the insurance papers. And when she pulled the papers out of the envelope on the top, of those papers was a post-it note and it was her husband's handwriting and this is what it said in case of an accident remember honey it's you I love not the car hmm. see the gospel says to us from Jesus in case of a pandemic It's you 
I love. Not the car. Not the school schedule. Not the CDC statistics. Not the plans for going back to church. Not your anger or your fear. It's you that I love. See, the gospel in a screaming whisper from heaven never stops saying to us from God, God so loves you. You. And he so dearly prized the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him and trust in him and rely on him and cling to him will not be lost, will not perish, but rather will have safe, satisfying, everlasting life. You see, the the cross of Jesus reminds us that love is a verb. And the cross of Jesus reminds us that as followers of His, that we have to live out that verb. It's not an option. It's a gracious command. And the energy and the fuel and the gas that we have to do that, to live out that verb, is because we were first loved. We were first Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is patient.